Hey listeners, Jonathan here. I'm dropping in on the back catalog of episodes to let you know about a very special workshop that I'm putting together in April for fans of Mindful Money. In this workshop, I'm going to be covering the path to financial independence, or what we used to call retirement. I want to show you how to create an income stream that rises to meet your rising cost of living and lasts the rest of your life. I want to show you how to build a simple, resilient portfolio that requires the least worry and effort. This is how I manage my own money. And I want to show you how to manage and adjust income through a life of rising costs and volatile market. And as per usual, we're going to bring uh, the focus back around to those things we know add to happiness and support well-being when you do finally reach financial independence. You can register at the link below, courses.mindful.money forward slash mindful dash retirement dash review dash workshop. Thanks. I hope to see you in class. Money is a vehicle for mm. some vision, for some destination. And I think for many people, they lose sight of that and that they, they make it about the money itself, accumulating yep. it, or it could even be the flip side where you don't accumulate any money, you kind of live in poverty, more at a, not as a potential choice, but out, out of some sort of insecurity or something. Do you think money takes up more life space than it should? On this show, we discuss with and share stories from artists, authors, entrepreneurs, and advisors about how they mindfully minimize the time and energy spent thinking about money. Join your host, Jonathan Dio, and learn how to put money in its place and get more out of life. Hey there, welcome back. On this episode of the Mindful Money Podcast, I'm chatting with Jason Scott Montoya. Jason has the heart of an entrepreneur. He graduated from the Art Institute of Atlanta in 2008, attempted to make an animated feature film, launched a political news website, and owned a marketing agency for seven years before he started freelancing in 2014. Today, he remains a freelancer. He blogs, he hosts a podcast, he hosts a couple podcasts. He sort of carved out his niche as a freelancer's guide. And in 2017, he published The Path of the Freelancer, an actionable guide to flourishing in freelancing and followed up in 2019 with The Jump, From Chaos to Clarity for Your Striving Small Business. Jason, welcome to the Mindful Money Podcast. Thank you for having me, Jonathan. Looking forward to chatting with you. Yeah, I'm excited for the conversation. Just to lay some groundwork, I know we said that you moved to Atlanta, but where do you call home now and where are you connecting from? Yeah, so originally from Arizona, me and my wife got married in 2005 and we jumped from the West Coast to the East Coast to Atlanta, Georgia. And we live in a county called Gwinnett County, and we lived in three different parts of it since 2005. And really this county for Gwinnett, that's what the shirt I'm wearing, that's what we call home. Like we've been here so long. It's, you know, been, what is that? It'll be 18 years in June, both how long I've been married and how long I've been here. And yeah, so this is home. It's Gwinnett County is kind of the Northeast side of Atlanta, Metro Atlanta. And uh, we're kind of on the the North side, uh, Northeast side of Gwinnett County. So pretty far away from downtown Atlanta. But um, we, we, you know, unless someone knows the area, pretty much just say, yeah, we're from Atlanta. <laughs> but so, yeah, that's, that's where we're at. So the, those first 18 years, you said in Arizona, 18 years? So from 1984 to 2005, so almost 21 years, about 20 years there. And then 18 years in Atlanta. And, but it. yeah, it's kind of funny just to think, you know, I've, I've been here almost as long as I've been in Arizona. And I grew up in a little city called Blackstaff, which was kind of by the Grand Canyon, north of Phoenix, a couple hours. and. Yeah. Grew up there, a population of 70,000 when the college was went in class and probably 50,000 when it wasn't. So <laughs> Atlanta's about 8 million or something, so quite a bit Huge. bigger. <laughs> and sprawly. Atlanta's pretty yeah. sprawly. Oh, yeah. So spreads out pretty far. Yeah. Yeah. So what did you, I'm just growing up, you know, Flagstaff, Arizona. Tell us about your parents. What kind of things did you learn about money and entrepreneurship when you were a kid? Yeah. So it's interesting. There's a lot of different the lessons I've learned along the way from my family. I'm a fifth generational entrepreneur. So my dad was an entrepreneur. He actually, he worked with a company called RPS. He bought a, a route, they call them routes. And RPS was bought by FedEx Ground and FedEx Ground had a contract model. So you ran your own business within the FedEx delivery system. And over the years, he kind of built up these uh, different routes five or six of them when he finally was finished. My grandfather, his dad, was also an entrepreneur. He had a, a laundry business and uh, my dad actually worked for him, did the commercial laundry for the city and for like different businesses within the city of Flagstaff. They ended up burning, they ended up having a 
big fire and when it burnt down grandfather decided with my dad he didn't want to continue that direction so they ended up shutting it down so my grandfather is an entrepreneur on my mom's side grandfather was also an entrepreneur he was a mason he built fireplaces both commercially and residentially he just did a lot of really interesting masonry work and also dabbling in video production and other types of buying and selling stuff and anyway the entrepreneurial spirit goes even beyond those generations but those are the ones i'm most familiar with so entrepreneurism was always something in me and just my personality being highly extroverted and being ambitious and just having a safe and loving home and community and family and church life. It just kind of, it gave me that safe place to sort of just dream big and go after it. And so I used to make movies through high school. My uncle owned an animation, a little animation studio. And he did stuff for PBS and Discovery Channel. And I always saw, I'd always go over to his house and see him in his little lab and his, cause he worked at home. He had this computer lab and then tell my cousin, Hey, grab me a couple of books off the shelf so I can learn this stuff at home and flip through the books. So finally it's kind of got up the courage and he set me up with the workstation and I'd go there after school and teach myself 3d animations. <laughs> that was kind of how the entrepreneurial side of it went from a financial side, always kind of solid, but simple financial principles being not going into debt, saving before you buy get being generous and giving. And so those were things that were taught to me and also modeled well. An interesting thing that kind of learned through growing up, but also after the fact was my grandfathers. Both of them ended up passing away a little over a decade ago, probably like 12 or 13 years ago now. But anyways, when they both died, they both left completely different financial legacies. One hmm. of them, you know, the, my grandfather who had the laundry and after that he had these buildings and he ended up renting those out and he operated in a way that was financially sustainable for him and his family, but also that allowed him to, his wife, grandma is still alive and to have a enough of a trust to continue to take care of her without ever her having to work. And then an inheritance that'll eventually family as when she passes. But anyways, the point being is he did things right in a lot of ways. He got the will figured out before he died, you know, all those types of things that, you know, are important, but you probably don't really, we don't care about them until it's either too late. He was pretty good about that. And I'm sure there were some things he could have done better. But on the other side, on my mom's side, it was kind of the opposite. You know, when he passed, there was tax liabilities that hadn't been dealt with. There was debts. There was no savings, no retirement. So both of their passing that got a really good picture of what not to do and what to do. And that's something that, you know, other family members, little bits and pieces that I've witnessed from other family members on how they've handled money. And so I've definitely been someone who's like, watch them go, okay, I don't want to, you know, I think it's unfair or maybe just even wrong to sort of leave something behind your kid to leave. You can either leave a mess or something, a blessing. And so that those choices kind of start today. And where did those go? So those are kind of a couple of pieces. I can kind of talk more about how that parlays into when I moved to Atlanta, but that's a good foundation to start yeah, with. Yeah, I want to pick at that a little bit because it's yeah. the thing that's most interesting about that to me is how much detail you know about it. Like most families keep those cards pretty close to the chest. They don't really, or cards close to the vest, I guess is the saying, right? They don't yeah. really share that as much. And it sounds like you have a lot of detail. So is that something of value in your family, like an openness around discussions about money? So with my father, my parents, that definitely was the case. And it probably was more so than it was with his parents. So I think he kind of pushed the envelope in a bit. And part of it was probably to try and carry those lessons forward. I think with on my dad's side, his great grandmother was also, you know, tied into the laundry business and his great grandfather who died like way before his grandmother died. And I think they were involved in the business somehow. So anyway, there was certain things that were more open to discussing and money seemed to be one of those, which is very different than like my wife's family, right? So her- or Than anyone's family. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's different than anyone's family. No yeah, one talks so, about it. It's amazing. But in her family, it was almost like offensive to bring it up. Yeah, that's normal. Yeah, yeah. That <laughs> is normal. Yeah, yeah. So I definitely am in the unusual there. And I'm very open as well for myself. So I've carried that legacy on in in sense of like not making it taboo. And, you know, I know there's probably some appropriateness and discretion that we oh. need to use, but as a general rule, I'm pretty open. And even when my kids ask me those kind of questions, like I'm pretty open, like, Hey, there's how much money I make per hour and here's how much I earn. And it's, I don't hold that back. 
I don't know yeah. if that answers your question or not. <laughs> yeah, it's great. So I, just sort of adding on to it a little bit. So when you were younger and your dad or mom or dad were sharing some stories about money, were you interested at the time? Say when you're 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, or at what age did you like turn the corner? Like, oh, you know, dad, I want to hear about this. Because I can imagine an eight-year-old going, you know, I want to go play with my, I don't know, what G.I. Joe's or my, you know, Matchbox cars or something, not wanting to hear about money. So what age were you when you said, you know, I do want to hear about this, dad. Thanks. Yeah. So that's interesting. And there is a kind of a connection probably to the entrepreneurial side of it. I always, I think part of it was a desire to kind of pursue the things I wanted to pursue and finding the problem solving of finding ways to get what I wanted. So I'll give you an example, or I can give you several examples, but one of them in junior high, my parents, so we did talk a lot about money and that kind of thing. And part of that may have also been like my parents were, you know, they were probably lower middle class. So we didn't necessarily have, we had a home and we kind of had things we were lacking, but we didn't, There, it wasn't like abundant in, in the way that maybe my kids experience or even others have. So one of the examples of what so for lunches at junior high and school i had to bring a lunch i couldn't buy a lunch but i had other friends that their parents would give them money to buy lunch when they got to school and so a domino's pizza would come in and they would sell them per slice but if you bought it if you bought a box you could get a better deal so what i did is i wanted pizza and i also wanted like soda and candy so I'd get all my friends who were going to already buy the pizza and stand in line and I'd get them all to give me their money. I'd stand in line for all of them. I'd buy the full pizza. I'd give them their slices. So now they're getting their slice and they don't have to stand in line. So it's a win-win for them. There's usually like a couple extra slices to which I get. I now have a few dollars extra that I can go buy a drink and candy. So the money thing was more of a vehicle to get what I wanted. Does that make totally. sense? Totally. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, you know the commercial? There's the commercial that talks about their little kids are being interviewed about what they want to be when they grow up. And it's kind of a jest, you know, I want to be a middleman when I grow up. I was, I was going to, okay. Yeah. I, yeah. You're kind of a middleman right there. You sort of put yeah, yourself. I was a broker, middle, a middle man broker. So there was lots of other examples, you know, shoveling snow and cause we were in black set, which is up in the mountains. So me and a friend would go shovel snow and get it, but we weren't like super ambitious. We just shovel as much as we needed to get the amount of money that we wanted. And then we were like done, you know? So a lot of the financial stuff was very entrepreneurial. Like how do I do something to earn something to get what I want? My mom used to do these, let's talk about middleman. I got my mom to sell stuff for me as a kid. So they had those like catalogs where you'd sell candy and other yep. things and you'd Fun get research. enough points. Yeah. You get enough points and you could get like a basketball hoop or this or that. And so I'd go to some neighbors and sell stuff. And then my mom would take it to like her painting class, at church group and things like that. And, but she always sold like way more than I ever sold. But so she was kind of carrying most of the weight, but I, I definitely got the benefits of all the points for her efforts. So. <laughs> That's awesome. So you're saying you're trying to do it because there's things you wanted. And this was a path for you to get the things you wanted, probably because you had sort of that lower middle class. You saw people that had things. So you wanted the things that they had and you couldn't get it unless you did something to raise yeah. some money to do it. Yeah, that's so a good point. How, yeah. How does that experience then translate into, you know, 29 years later today? Like what lessons do you pull from that? Yeah. So I think there's some really profound lessons. I'll say one thing that I think might be helpful too is, well, I think just maybe at the core of it is money is a vehicle for mm. some vision, for some destination. And I think for many people, they lose sight of that and that be, they make it about the money itself, accumulating yep. it. Or it could even be the flip side where you don't accumulate any money. You kind of live in poverty more at a, not as a potential choice, but out, out of some sort of insecurity or something. So I think it's important. And the reason I bring that up, because I came to Atlanta and I had the marketing business and I kind of, there's some things there that I can definitely share. But now where I am now as a freelancer, one of the things I decided early on and that I even have in path with freelancer, one of the key steps is to determine how much money I want to earn per year. Because that, and that is determined by what, you know, if the money is a vehicle towards what's the life I want to live now. And it's also considering you know, next year and the years that follow. So not just the immediate term, but also the long term. And so how much money does it take to do that, to take care of my responsibilities, to have fun, to give? all of those things and to determine that right up front. And then I also kind of tie that into how many hours I want to work. And then you essentially could divide that and 
you can kind of get a practical hourly rate. Whether you charge hourly or not, you just get an idea of that's how much you want to earn. Yep. So I think money can control us or we can control it. And I think it partially is tethered to whether or not we see it as a vehicle towards something or whether it is the desired outcome or accumulation. Does that make sense? It does. And what you're describing is, you know, thinking about it today, what do I want to have for the rest of this year? In the next year, you're talking about this sort of interrelation between your cash flow statement and your balance sheet. And that's just a, that's a financial plan. Whether you're a business yeah. and you have goals or you're an individual who's got personal financial goals, that's a plan. You're writing a plan. Yes. You can do it back a napkin. You can do it complex with an advisor, but it's, what do I want to have in my life? How do I make it happen? Let's have a plan for that. That's genius. Yeah. yeah. So, and I think that kind of plays out at different levels, like even just thinking about, I guess it's kind of asking ourselves, what's the finish line before we start the race? And I think a lot of times we run that race and then we get halfway through the race and we're like, what is the finish line? Where is it? <laughs> and there hey. never was one. We're just running it in circles. <laughs> yeah. Could you do like a thumbnail sketch? Because we've talked about, you know, you have this marketing agency, you talk about freelancing, but just give us the arc. How do all those years fit together? Yeah. So when I moved here, this is another interesting financial lesson for sure. Before I moved, financially speaking, when it comes to college specifically, I was on the right path. The first year I went to a university in Flagstaff called Northern Arizona University. I had a Pell Grant. I didn't have to go into debt. And so I kind of rode the funds that were given to me and did that first year in college. And that was great. And sort of my mentality was, you know, I'm going to get through college. I didn't really want to go to college, but just to kind of honor my father. That was one of the things that I decided to do. I wanted to just skip college and go straight to entrepreneurship, which, you know, ironically was actually kind of what pulled all the story around. So you'll understand that in a minute. But anyways, that second year, I didn't get those same grants. So I decided I'll go to a community college so that I can you know, afford to do it and not get myself in trouble financially. And this is, I've learned this and this is one example and I can give another one. I was someone who was like very staunchly against going into debt. But what I didn't realize is that we, me, can get into debt indirectly without realizing it. <laughs> And so with the, um, or, you know, or get it, get tethered up into it in a way that's more severe than we realize. So with school, so I went to the university, I went to the community college, and then me and my wife got married and moved to Atlanta. So I now needed to transfer. And I transferred to the Art Institute of Atlanta, which you mentioned that I graduated from in 2008. Well, all of my financial sense went out the window when I did that because the Art Institute is very expensive. But I had student loans and I wasn't thinking about it. And so my wife also transferred and she went to an online school university. So between the two of us, we borrowed about $90,000 for college, which a few things we didn't realize, but when we ended up paying all of that off in 10 years, and it was about $160,000, $155,000. Including interest. Yeah. So then yeah. that's the thing is they didn't say this. But we paid 90000 for the school, but then we paid almost 65000 in interest, both in capitalized interest and then accruing interest as we did it. So we wanted to knock that out. It took us about 10 years, and uh, there's a kind of a story there. So I went to college, transferred to Atlanta. We're in this college. I also started, I started the news website, but it didn't make any money. So putting in a lot of time into this thing. Then I started the marketing agency. Finally started to kind of make some money. But with the marketing company, I always struggled because when you have a staff and you have payroll, like you got to make a lot of money to cover that. And it just feels like a leaky bucket that never ends. You know, it's like you fill the bucket and you're like, oh, I'm finally there. And then all of a sudden it's like you look in the bucket, it's all gone. <laughs> I was actually wondering, as I was reading your story, I was actually wondering if that played into the reasoning behind the shift from marketing agency with lots of employees to freelancing with no employees. Is that, is that really the fundamental reason why it happened? I mean, is that the... Well, uh, what I would, I think I would just lay, the way I would phrase it a little bit broader, but I think you're hitting on it, which is I knew when I shut down the company in 2013 and uh, I spent a, about a year kind of going through that process and it ended in 2014. One of the things I realized is I said, and this is something I hadn't really fully, fully grasped when I started the company and even as I ran it was, if I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it right, and I'm going to do it well, I'm going to steward this business well, it's going to be really hard. And so if I'm going to do something really hard like that, I got to be fully committed to it. Because if I'm not fully committed, I'm always going to be kind of not doing what I need to do to make it work. And that's sure. one of the specific examples is like, okay, 
I know what it would take to kind of have enough of a sales system to really drive enough revenue to make things work and not be kind of always having empty buckets. And I said, if that's the mission, then, then I don't want that mission. And it's not that I don't want to do a hard thing, but it's just the outcome, the end goal of that mission was not what I wanted. So I don't know if that, an- that answer your question or am I off? No, I think, I think it's, it, it was a lot of work and it ended up in a place and you didn't want to be in the place it ended up. And you saw that going, you know, at the outset. So you see, you know what, I got to change something. That, that's, yeah. So it's like, Hey, you know, you want to climb Mount Everest? Oh, that sounds cool. Then I'm like halfway up and I'm like, actually, do I really want to climb Mount Everest? Right. Not really. Right. Maybe I want to swim in a lake over in you know, Arizona. Or something. <laughs> and you write about this in your books. You write, you write about the importance of committing. Yes. Right. That's one of the, I'd say, I think that's your first thing in the freelancing book is if you're going to, you know, know it freelance and commit, you have to commit to it. If you're not going to commit to it, then, right. So that's like the first step towards success. Yeah. And it's, it's a double-edged sword. And one of the things when I talk to freelancers and they're struggling and trying to figure out if they are fully committed, that really the key, the key question is to ask yourself, if your bank was empty, if your bank account was empty and you didn't have any work in front of you, is your first thought, where am I going to get my next project? Or is it I need to get a job. That kind of tells you if you're fully committed. Because if you're fully committed, you're looking for the next gig, the next project. But if you're not fully committed, you're thinking of maybe I should do something else. Maybe I should go get a job. Yeah, plan B. What's my plan plan B B here? So being fully committed is kind of cutting out plan B, which, you know, there's kind of a a way to sort of reconcile that without it being too extreme, but where you drive yourself into the ground unnecessarily. But anyway, the idea is being fully committed. And the other interesting thing about this the irony of being fully committed is that it's actually not as hard as it is if we're not fully committed. And the, what the, I mean, getting there, the steps aren't as hard if you're fully committed. Yeah. So, yeah. And, the, yep. and like what I mean by that is like, if you know something, you know, the risk is coming, then I can plan that I can expect that risk is because I'm fully committed. So I can expect the risk and then I can mitigate against that risk. And it may be a lot more work at the front end at the very beginning. But to maintain that is fairly easy. So yep. that's, I think, the irony with being fully committed is it actually is easier in the long run. Well, I look at it this way. Like if you're fully committed, all your energies and whatever energies the universe can provide because of your commitment are at your beck and call. If you're one foot in, one foot out, then you don't get those same energy. You don't get your energies. You don't get the universe energies, either one of them in your pocket. So you've been a freelancer since 2014. So tell the audience what freelancing is, and then tell us about a little bit about the transition from business owner employees to freelancer, no employees. And I asked this question because I think most people go the other way. Like I'm a freelancer for a bit, and then I hire an employee to help me out, and then I hire another employee, and then I hire another employee, and now we have a business. Yeah. And I would also add that the tension you're describing, people go the other way. It's very strong, even with people around me. So when I shut down the company, I had a very strict, like, I'm not going to create another marketing company. And so I had like this hard, fast rule, but it was like, because I had that, I was fully committed. All of a sudden it was like, hey, you should think about hiring people. Hey, you should think about hiring people, growing that other business. And it doesn't mean that I couldn't or I won't, but I'm just going to do it for this. So like you mentioned, my books and my podcasting, you know, that could turn into something that maybe that might be a business that I wouldn't mind, would be okay hiring someone. So it's not that I'm against hiring. It's just that I don't want to build that type of business again. Again, that's why I chose not to do it. <laughs> I knew what it takes and I don't want to do that. And the more I work, because I work with a lot of agencies where they'll they'll outsource stuff to me. And I realize how much it just reminds me, oh yeah, I don't want to do that. <laughs> you know. So, but kind of to the, what is a freelancer? At a basic level, a freelancer is if someone who has a job is balled into a single employer, they're fully, you know, their work week is committed to that, allocated to that business. A freelancer essentially has diversified bosses, right? So you have multiple clients might work with, you know, six to 12 clients at a time, and probably three or four of those are going to be a bulk of my time each month. And so a freelancer is simply someone who has multiple clients. Now that can get more specific in different varieties and forms, but at the basic level, that, that's what is a freelancer. Do you think there's also, there's a benefit of a freelancer of focus? Like a freelancer committed to a certain type of freelancing does this thing. Whereas if you're an employee of a company, they may ask you to do this thing and, oh, by the way, could you do this other thing and this other thing? So does a freelancer have the ability to really focus on say their niche expertise or are they also beholden to the client wanting other things? 
Yeah, I think you got both. You definitely have both. And this is one of the interesting dynamics that I think a lot of people that jump into freelancing with rose-colored glasses fail to realize is it can actually be harder as a freelancer to set and enforce certain boundaries than when you are an employee or even at when you're an entrepreneur. And so everything is kind of dynamic driven. So when you're a freelancer, like financially speaking, nobody's going to say, you need to, here's a 401k program and you need to be contributing and we're going to match it and da, 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 da. Which you would get at in most companies that you work with as an employee, unless it's a startup or something. But um, as a freelancer, nobody's telling you that. So that's kind of the idea with the path of freelancer. What are these systems that need to sort of, we need to have because nobody else behind us what to do. So I don't know if that's kind of what you're hinting at, but that's yeah. what came to mind. I'm actually wondering about, can you as a freelancer say I'm a photographer and I just I take pictures? They're not going to ask me to write a blurb about the picture. You know, they'll have yeah. somebody else, the freelancer, that will write the blurb about the picture. I just take the pictures. Whereas if I'm sitting in an office and my job is to take the pictures, you know, my day might not be full. So they may say, you know what, you've got two more hours today. You've taken six hours mm -hmm. of picture. Why don't you go take some pictures? Yeah. Why don't you want wash the dishes or take some or do something else, right? You know, there's like creep, well, I, more creep in a company than in a freelancing gig. So I think there's definitely that in terms of dynamics that can definitely be on the side of the freelancer to kind of avoid some of that. And sure. it, there's a few variables that can help shape that. But I think as a freelancer, the more specific you can get, the better, the more focus you can get with your industry, your audience, your target and the problems you solve and how you solve them, then you create more value that you can deliver. And so I would definitely recommend that. And I mean, as I've, when I first started freelancing, you could say that it was sort of broader and then it kind of narrowed in as the longer I've done it. And I think that'll continue as I continue. And now with me, I'm a little bit differently because I do pricing based on my time. So I mentioned hourly, I do batches of 10 hours at a time. And so, so the creep is kind of interesting, the dynamic. One of the reasons some people charge per project, some people do other forms of pricing. But because I'm hourly, like if you creep, if you scope creep with me, you're paying for it. So it mm. creates a natural tension that the more you use me, the more you're paying. So even if it does creep into something that, like, I'll give you an example. There's a lot of things because I, I work with clients at both the project management strategic level and both tactical level. And sometimes the tactical level makes sense for me to do to fill in the gap. But in the long term, because of the rates I charge, it, sometimes it doesn't make sense for me to do those tactical things. You're paying too much, <laughs> essentially, if you're having me to do that. So we'll try and bring in another resource. But out of convenience, someone may have something urgent or and they just don't want to kind of go through that. And they know that I'm reliable and they're just, they just pay the premium, so to speak. <laughs> so, but I'm happy to sort of accommodate because of that. Now, if I was charging a fixed fee, I would have to be very strict about my boundaries and not going outside of that scope creep because that means I'm doing free work. Does that make sense? Right. Yep. Yeah. Totally. A lot of this comes out in your contractual arrangements. Like what, what are we paying for? How is it written up? That becomes very important if you're a freelancer, yeah. understanding how that works. Yeah. So question about, I want to go back to the, how you transitioned from, and what was that like transitioning from running a business to being a freelancer? Yes. It's definitely been a, for me, like all the benefits without the downsides. And there was one, actually one downside that I did struggle with at first. And this kind of has to do with maybe your earlier question too, was I had a company and I had a team. And when I shut down the company and I was on my own, I realized in retrospect that I was sort of, I had a, a wall or a shield with a team. I wasn't on my own. So when things got hard or difficult or client challenges, like I wasn't on my, I wasn't feeling lonely or isolated, right? And in some cases, I probably took that too far. I know that I did. I took it too far where I actually hid behind the team. You know, like, here's a bad situation. I'll team deal with it, <laughs> you know. And so hiding from that. Well, as a freelancer, both the benefits and the downside of being independent is that we have freedom to be independent. But the downside is we're in the fire. We are the firefighter. And so we have to be resilient to deal with the heat. Now, I think that creates some positive dynamics. One, I, may, I want to make sure I do good work. So it kind of prevents me from getting too comfortable because I got to stay focused and stay on target because I don't want to deal with the heat, right? <laughs> so unnecessarily. 
And sometimes that still happens, you know, there are things I can't, that are outside of my control that if I do everything right and things still, you know, go down in a dumpster fire. So yeah, that's part of that transition is going from being by myself to, or being with a team to being by myself. And this sometimes why people go from being by themselves to building a team is you know, being in the fire as a firefighter is, is tough. Or, you know, being in war is tough being a soldier. You know, you, maybe I should be a general or <laughs> I don't have to be on the front line because it's a rough place to be. So I think that's a similar ship. Now, one of the other things as far as the business goes, I learned a lot of things in the business. But it wasn't until the business ended that some of those solidified inside of me. And so when I became a freelancer, and this is why a lot of freelancers struggle and why I wrote the book and why I've been able to be successful as a freelancer is I run my freelancing as if it is a business, even though it's me. So I have systems and processes that I follow that I'm disciplined about following. And I follow them because I had the company, I learned those lessons and I knew what happened when I didn't. Well, I know, I know what will happen as a freelancer if I don't follow these systems. So I'll give you an example. I have a, a one of my systems called the water tower. Essentially, it's an emergency savings. And as a freelancer, you're going to have people that pay you on time, people that pay you late, some people that don't pay you at all. <laughs> so I wanted a financial buffer because I didn't want to feel the stress of that reality. That is a reality. So I built financial buffer that essentially is a big old cushion. That when those things happen, it doesn't, I don't have to panic and freak out. You know, I have time to figure it out. The well is dry. Let's go to the water tower. Yeah, exactly. And so that I have to expect the drought. And then when the drought comes, it's not a big deal. And I built that into my hourly rate too. Like I built in, you know, every year and probably there's going to be like 2000, I kind of just built in $2,000 a year where someone doesn't pay me. Now, thankfully it had been much milder than, but that just means I have a little bit more cash than I would have. But I, if I do, if someone doesn't pay me, then I don't lose anything out. Now I do have another, you know, other systems that help mitigate those type issues or risks that are flexible as well. And those help me. And there's a lot of those written about in the book. So I just say, you know, we're not going to cover all of them here, but if you, if somebody picks up the book, then yeah. by all means, so you'll see these all detailed. So we're talking about mindful money is a podcast about, you know, money. We talk a lot about entrepreneurship. You coach entrepreneurs. So how important do you think it is? for people to consider entrepreneurship as a path. I know that your life has been packed with it. My life has been packed with it. I think that most of my success derives from the business that I started, less the fact that you know I've been successful in that business, but the fact that I have a business has built and grown and the value of that thing has is becomes my net worth. The business is my net worth. How important do you think entrepreneurship is just for your clients, but us, for us generally? Yeah. So I think if when people, when we sort of open the entrepreneurial net, open it up into a variety of variations, I think it's a big tent for a lot of people to get inside. Totally. Yeah. Freelancing is a form of entrepreneurship or solopreneurship. And I think those historically have been diminished for the build a company, make it big, sell it for lots of money. And if that's the kind of person you are and the type of thing you want to do, then that's fine. Go after that. But I think for most people, the smaller approach is actually probably more common. And if you think about it, like I mentioned at the very beginning about money being a vehicle, right? So if you want to build a business, grow it, scale it, and then sell it for a lot of money, well, you want to do that so that it gives you money for something. But you could also just create a business that generates enough income that does the same thing as well. So we can skin cats in a lot of different ways or a different animal if you like cats a lot. So but the idea is that entrepreneurship is there's a lot of forms of it. And even like my father, even though he had the contractor business, the different routes, it was under FedEx. So he didn't have to do the sales side of it. So if people could do franchises. They can do all forms of entrepreneurship out there. And I think there's a lot of them out there. I also think what people don't realize until they've lost their job is how, as an entrepreneur, our risk can be diversified. Now, this isn't always the case. Sometimes you get freelancers where they only have one client and they get all their income from this one client. And essentially, it is a job. So they're not diversified. And then when that client stops working with them, they're like in a big old mess. But for me, I'm intentional. Like I have a rule, one of my systems is I won't let any one client take more than like 30% of my income per month, except for like a special project. I might go over it temporarily, but not in a long-term sense. And part of yeah. that is to mitigate against that whale risk of like, 
yeah, they bring in a lot of money and it's great. But then when they leave, I'm starving to death. <laughs> you know, this is home so beautifully because I, this is probably seven or eight years ago, I took on a client. This one client was equal to maybe half of my, you know, assets under management. So this was an enormous client, instantly became a third of my business. But she was a client for two, three years. And then when she wasn't a client anymore, I had grown, still hurt, but yeah. the business had grown enough. So I flatlined for a couple of years, cool. but it was so important to the business that she stay for as long as she stayed. Otherwise, you know, there, I hired people. It would have been kind of a debacle if I had lost that client that early. So yeah, it's a really good idea to limit the power any one client has over, yeah. you know, your practice, your business. So that kind of them just having systems to diversify and you could, you know, you probably know this as well. Like if you're an employee, you can do the same thing, making sure you're investing and maybe you're buying real estate. You can diversify in other ways if you don't, you know, are a freelancer. So I think the idea though is however you do it, do it. But yep. wherever context you're in, just figure out the best way to do it in that context versus feeling like you're locked into one form or another of entrepreneurship. Do you think our culture pushes people away from entrepreneurship or do you think it's open and anyone can do it? That's an interesting question. So I don't know that I've felt that in any obvious way. In fact, I've probably felt it that it encourages, I mean, even just the idea of like Shark Tank as a show and you know, that sure. kind of drives so much interesting and related type of activities online and on and even on social media. But I'm kind of in that type of entrepreneurial bubble that may not be representative of the normal employment experience. I'll give you an example. Yeah, you know, if you're an employee and you lose your job and you get fired, your income is all gone, right? It's so you're you have a high risk of loss of income. Whereas me, if I've got yeah. if I lose my biggest client or you lose your biggest client, that thirty percent. It's only thirty percent. I'm still making seventy percent on my paycheck. But if you're an employee and you lose your paycheck, you lose a hundred percent. So do you want to lose 30 or 100%? So I think that culturally, that is probably a narrative that's out there that it's more secure to have a job when in fact, it's actually more risky. I think you and I would agree on that because we're entrepreneurs, but I think you're right. I think culturally, the adopted sense is that having a job that you show up at eight o'clock or nine o'clock every day and clock out at five o'clock is definitely less risky, but hard to make the argument for it when you look at the way you're looking at it. I would not, I don't know how to phrase it, but I would say we probably underestimate the risk of selling our soul to a job for money in terms of just depleting our passion and our motivation where we're simply just, we probably should do something else, but we're just doing it because we need the paycheck because we need to pay for this or that. Yeah. Yeah. That being said, I do know, and I've seen that in people, but I've also seen people that love their jobs. They're working for yeah, a great yeah. company, treats them really well, got a great benefits package. They love going to work every day. You know, I've, I've seen that as well. So you can find it. People can find that. And that's, you know, equally good. So why the second book? Like jumped off and you started freelancing. You write about freelancing, which makes perfect sense. You're still freelancing. Where does the jump come from in this whole process? Yeah. So Path of the Freelancer is very practical. You don't even have to read the whole book. You it's very organized. You figure out what your problem is and you go to that part of the book and there's the solution, right? So The Jump is a very different type of book. And in some ways, it's a letter to my former self before I started the company. Like, what would I tell myself? Which maybe I wouldn't have listened to anything I said. But part of it is, these are the, I wrote the second book to entrepreneurs and particularly entrepreneurs that are in a particular stage, which is the stage of, they have been doing this a while and like we're talking about with like the job that sold or that was sort of draining their soul. They have a business that's draining their soul, right? I had a business that felt like a prison and probably like in 2009, 10. And I kind of realized, okay, this isn't working. So I shifted and I transformed the business into something much better. And then that gave me the visibility to go, actually, is this what I want to do? So that kind of the last question I asked is if I could do anything vocationally, what would I do? And marketing agency wasn't one of them. So I decided to move. But before I got to there, the question I asked before that was, if I were to reboot this company and do it differently than I had the first three or four years, how would I do it differently? So I restructured the business. And so the book talks about kind of the before and after and that transition and what that print is for that second half. And it's really processing those things that I went through. And it was very therapeutic to write the book. And interestingly enough, and this kind of, you know, it's for entrepreneurs that feel stuck. You know, maybe they have three years where they're just, their revenues have plateaued and they can't seem to get over that hump. And really the essence of the book is to say that you can't grow your company until you grow yourself. 
And so the book is geared towards how do I help you one see that and also help you change, which is a difficult thing to do in a book, but I certainly tried. <laughs> I want to give you this phrasing. I have a coach, one of my business coaches. So you get nuggets from business coaches. And this is one of the nuggets that has stuck with me for probably a decade. He said, Jonathan, it is what it is. It is what you made it. It changes when you change. So that's another system I have. It's called wind it down. 5.30. So I want to end my day at six. And I have an alarm that says, hey, it's time to start winding it down. So, <laughs> Oh, that's your wind down alarm. Are we, are we getting close to the end here anyways? That's good. Yeah. Now, one of the interesting things that I've experienced as a freelancer is working with entrepreneurs. In a lot of ways, the book is also a letter to my clients that I work with. And in some ways, you know, I work with clients to help them grow their sales and influence. I use different digital marketing strategies and tactics. But at the, my Trojan horse is really how do I help them become the type of person that runs these types of systems to make their business better and to be a better boss and be a better leader and be a better fulfiller. So that's kind of another layer is just kind of the deeper, how do we help people become better versions themselves so that they can be better leaders for the people around them and their families and communities. Yeah, it does sort of spread out that way. So you've been a business owner run a business with a team for seven years. You freelanced for roughly eight years. I know that you prefer freelancing, obviously. You've said <laughs> as much here. But are there some good things about having a team that you miss? Yeah. So like I said, having the team and the community and camaraderie and having the have versions of that now, right? And I have clients that I work with and their teams there. But it shifts a little bit more. It's not as permanent or it's not as the volume in terms of how much time you spend with the team is different. So that camaraderie is certainly something that's lost and kind of have to replicate in other aspects of life. Right. And there definitely is a diversification of, of skill sets and talents and roles and responsibility, as well as a healthy dependency of like, hey, I'm sick this week. I need help. You know, that's not necessarily, I have to create systems to help kind of manage that. But to some degree, a lot of my income is labor dependent. So that's where I can, I'm certainly exploring other new source like writing books and doing podcasts and things that can kind of play that role in a way. But yeah, those are definitely pieces of the puzzle. I think one of the things that an agency definitely has an advantage to providing is that scale. If you have yeah. a team and, and you need to do something big and fast, sometimes there are going to be certain types of projects that they're just going to be better suited for. And I'm a better player of a role in that. Probably not going to do all the pieces. One. So you sort of said something that I want to tease out because I'm wondering if the third book is in the works and if the third book is going to sort of compare and contrast your experiences as a business owner versus freelancing. Yeah. So actually my third book is very different than the first two. If the first one is practical, the second one is personal, my story. The third one is religious. So it's called From the Garden to the Cross and it's wow. about the, uh, Jesus's story. Now there is a connection to the business, but it's about his, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane all the way to when he was crucified. And what do we learn about ourselves and him through that process? But the one of the triggering points as it relates to the business is when I was ending my company from 2013, I took a year to kind of figure out what I was going to do and to shut it down. And about probably halfway through that, or maybe two thirds or three quarters of the way through that, I really wanted to finish well. So the last three months of the business, I wanted to make sure that everyone was taken care of, clients were taken care of, and I made some mistakes. I did some things well, but ultimately I had that kind of idea of like, what does it mean to finish well? And I thought of the, what Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. And I thought, what could I learn about finishing well from him in that moment in the passion story? And so that kind of has some connections to the business, but it kind of also starts to go outside of the business to a higher level. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes perfect sense. And because I know you, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> so there's a ton of noise out there, you know, and I want to ask you to simplify it for people. Let's pretend you're on a plane. You sit down next to somebody, they figure out what it is you do. And they say, you know, I'm struggling with, you know, this business that I have. And what would you give them? Just one thing that they could do today that would lead to more personal and business success. You know, I think it, articulating what it is we want and kind of tying into the commitment and then getting committed to going after yeah. that. I think a lot of us don't actually know what we want and our desires drive us. Or maybe we kind of do know what we want, but we don't want to put it out there. It's very, and this kind of does tie into the new book. There's something about putting ourselves out there that makes us vulnerable 
and to criticism or critique or challenge. And there's very few things that make us feel as vulnerable as putting out what it is that we desire and want, our dreams and aspirations. And so I think if they don't have clarity on what that is, or they have some sort of, there's some sort of tension around that, that would be one of the steps. And, and that's one of the things I do talk about in the second book is like your business is a vehicle to drive you towards somewhere that has to do with your personal vision, your personal aspirations. And so it needs to be a vehicle that's driving you there. And for me, my marketing company was actually driving me the wrong way. It took me east when I was going west or wanting right. to go west. And so I thought it was a vehicle that was going to take me where I wanted to go, but it was actually taking me further and further away. And I had to get out of the car and then I had to walk back to where I started. And then from that starting point, it's kind of that phrase you probably heard, you know, if you climb the ladder, on the, the ladder was on the wrong building. You know, you need to figure out, make sure the ladder's on the right building before you start climbing the ladder to get on the, that kind of idea. <laughs> yeah, we use that analogy in this on this podcast before. I love it. You know, before you start climbing, make sure your ladder's on the right wall. What is it? So the flip side of the same question is you're sitting down there with these, you know, lamenting about the business that she's in. What's one thing that she's probably doing or people have told her she should be doing that she should ignore and stop doing? What's one thing that's sort of the common parlance that hurts business owners. So, well, that kind of, you know, when I was talking earlier about the idea of like, it's the entrepreneurial tent, that there's different types of entrepreneurship. And this kind of gets to getting clear on our vision and what we want, both for ourselves and for our business. We are distracted when we don't know the finish line. But when we know the finish line, then we know if something is or is not a distraction because it is either contributing to us moving towards the finish line or it is detracting from it. And so by having that clarity, it helps us to then go, okay, your advice, someone may be giving you advice for their vision, for what they want. And when you apply that advice to yourself, it actually, that's not what you want. So it takes you in the wrong direction. So you need to ignore the distractions and, or at least contextualize them, take the piece that could help you and then apply it to your vision. And so ultimately the question would be is you need to cut out the noise. And the way to do that is to get clear on the finish line. Well said. Before we wrap, there's a couple of questions. I have to come back to the personal. I warned you about this. So what was the last thing you changed your mind about? The last thing I changed my mind about? Well, there's a lot of things I've been changing my mind about. Just that's writing a, this. That's a good sign. That's a good yeah, sign. like writing this book is like opening my mind up in a lot of ways. And, you know, like this, like even today, I was watching this video just about how people change. And I think we, and I tend to be intellectual and knowledge oriented. And so shifting my mindset to realize that has a place, but people they don't necessarily process that way. We're more intuitive and it's kind of impulsive and less systematic and formal in what we think and how we think and we're organic. And so kind of learning how to speak to the heart of people and it kind of gets to their desires and figure out what is this that they want. So even though like if I'm not doing like if someone is not investing in their long term in retirement. That may be simply an unawareness issue or they just don't know that they should be doing it. But they also might not be the type of person that wants, that does that because it's the appropriate thing to do. So those are two different dynamics, becoming the type of person that would sort of do that. And I think as a free, kind of being a fully committed freelancer, you, know, you kind of identify, okay, to do this well, I've got to figure these problems out. And someone might be able to help me, give me sort of fast forward that process, but I'm going to figure those things out. It's different than someone who isn't fully committed and isn't going to try and solve those, who doesn't want to solve those problems. So kind of changing my mind about how to meet people where they are, that really connects with them where they are in the way that they need it and not the way that I want to deliver it. I don't know. That's kind of a long answer, but... <laughs> It's a, so you, I don't know if you know this, uh, this word upaya. I know that we had a conversation earlier about Buddhism and Christianity, but upaya is skillful means. It's okay. you know offering people the piece of information or advice that they need in the way they need it at the time they need it. It's just skillful means, doing yeah. it in a skillful way, right? That's kind of what yeah. you're talking about. Yeah. And also, I think stories and narratives, that's one of those ways that we connect music art community. Yeah. And it is different for different people in different ways and different times and different seasons. So 
Yeah. I mean, tomorrow, maybe a totally today I wake up with back pain. And so I have one sort of set of, you know, philosophies about the world. Tomorrow I don't I have a different set of philosophies yeah. about the world. You know, it, you know, day to day, a person could change. Yeah. So a second question, if you could get the truth about any single question about your life or your future, what would the question be? Well, interesting enough, like that question or that kind of thing of changing my mind is kind of tied to it. How do I meet people where they are in the, in the best way possible? But th that's right now, that's, I kind of follow, you know, I, I face really difficult challenges and then I sort of follow the breadcrumbs for answers. And I find really wonderful, interesting, neat things lead to this hawker or this podcast or whatever. And it's really kind of cool how that unfolds. And that's, so I don't know that I have anything more specific than that to say, but that, that's a couple of things that come to mind. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The, the idea that, you know, how do I, I need to meet them where they are. How do I meet them where they are? That's, yeah. that's pretty, yeah. Tell the audience how they can connect with you. Where do they find you? So my website is jasonscottmontoya.com. That's jasonscottmontoya.com. If you put a slash blog, you can see kind of the library slash podcast. You can see the podcast, the podcast, much everywhere you find it, Stitcher, Spotify, so on and so forth. The podcast is called The Share Life. Systems and Stories to Live Better and Work Smarter. And the books are on Amazon. You can check those out. I'm also on social media, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram a little bit as well. Pinterest, all of those. YouTube, I've got a YouTube channel with a podcast on there as well. My podcast with Jonathan is is on there as well. So you can check that out where we put this there. But yeah, pretty active on the website, on social media. And if you want to connect, feel free to connect in those I do have a contact page on my site if you want to reach out, share your story, ask a question. And uh, yeah. Great. Good way to I spent some time on your website before, you know, this interview today and you've got a lot of content, a lot of stuff. And there's a lot of little, you know, rabbit holes. You go down this rabbit yeah. hole, there's a thing. So go down some rabbit holes, visit Jason's site, go down some rabbit holes. The, the links will be, you know, in the show notes for everybody. Jason, thanks very much for coming on. I've enjoyed another conversation with you and I, I look forward to the next one. Cool. Thank you, Jonathan. I appreciate it. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at mindful.money. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash mindful money. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes.